0: I'm Alka Kurian, host of the podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender, and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast. Broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian films and books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is Vikram Chandra, an award winning Indian American writer who's written seven books. His first novel, Red Earth and Pouring Rain, won the 1996 Commonwealth Writers Prize for Best First Book. His 2014 novel, Geek Sublime The Beauty of Code, The Code of Beauty, was a final for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Chandra is a professor in creative writing at the University of California, Berkeley. Today, I'll be talking to him about his 2006 novel, Sacred Games, a novel of over 900 pages, which was a subject of a bidding war among leading publishers in India, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Sacred Games has also been adapted as a web television series by the same name. Vikram joins me from Berkeley. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Of course, it's my pleasure. The way you weave different plot lines and character arcs throughout the book is unique. I'd imagine writing in this form could become difficult in terms of structuring each person's respective journey. Did you find that you had to have Singh and Gaitonde's stories worked out, at least have a rough picture of their trajectories, before writing the book? thinking about their respective lives inform parts of other characters. For example, did you ever figure out somewhere you wanted to take Singh's character, which then influenced the story of Guy Tondes or vice versa? Also, did you have an idea of all the side characters' stories, or do your stories just come to you as you're writing?
1: You know, I sometimes wish I could plan my books, but I've never been able to do that. So I... Only discover the plot and characters through actually writing. So Sartaj Singh, the cop, showed up in a previous book of short stories, Love and Longing in Bombay. And he's the protagonist in one of the short stories in there. So I knew something about his backstory and his life. But all I had at the beginning when I started writing Sacred Games was an image. And that often happens to me. I have a feeling, a kind of emotional temperature, a landscape of some sort, and a couple of characters, right? So all I knew then is that there is a gangster holed up in this weird bunker-like house in the suburbs in Bombay. And that's where I started. And by sort of writing and asking questions about everybody else, the peripheral characters emerge, Gaetondi's own history and what he wants, that emerges. I was just telling my students yesterday in a writing workshop that all first drafts are shitty first drafts and even your (laughs) 10th draft is not or at least mine are maybe not as shitty but they're still pretty unformed and full of holes. So I do a lot of revision and then at some point I discovered the overall architecture of the story I'm constructing and then I can begin to work out how all the threads weave together and I'm kind of a software geek. I wrote an entire book about Programming and programming languages and pre modern Indian aesthetics, <laughs> with people like uh, Anand Vardhana and Abhinavagupta as a couple of the protagonists, if you will, in that book. So I did lean on some really ugly software. I don't know if you or your listeners would have even heard of Microsoft Project. It's something that is used by project planners, right? So if you're building a bridge, you need to have certain people present and materials present at a certain stage of the bridge building. And then events depend on each other, right? You have to finish the foundations before you build higher. And so what it allows you to do is to track people against time, right? And so in a very clumsy way, despite the horrible user interface, I ended up using that. And so finally, The structure and the characters emerge from this messy procedure.
0: I was struck by how, as a reader, we can still root for Gaitonde. He's a greedy, selfish, sadistic character. But the way he presents his life story is obviously meant to make him appear as someone you can root for, certainly making him an unreliable narrator. As an author, do you have to be subconsciously thinking about how point of view influences how much a reader identifies with a character. A lot of the time, as soon as a reader identifies with a character, they are unable to break that sympathy or connection with the character and end up excusing any of their wrongdoings or at least attempting to justify it. Does that ever take away from the points you're trying to make through the character, or is it a way to show that people aren't only bad, or only good?
1: So it's interesting you're talking about point of view. I started writing the book and... For those of your listeners who haven't read the book, alternating chapters are told either from Sartaj's point of view or from Ganesh Gaithonde, the bad guy's point of view, quote unquote bad guy, right, in terms of what you're saying. And I wrote first both in third person, and then after 200 manuscript pages, this kind of flashback went on in my head, and I realized I had to write Gaitande from first person, right, where Sartaj's. Chapters are written in third person, and it was precisely for this reason. You can use third person to get really close to a character, but a first-person narrator point of view gives you more intimacy, right? And more, what's the word I'm looking for? More engagement, more complicity in what that character is actually doing. And nobody thinks they're the bad guy, right? And so like real-life gangsters that I met while doing the research on the book They say this in different ways, right? So I met Arun Ghali, who he's now a politician as well. But I met him early on. This was in the mid-90s before he became a politician. And I asked him, like, you know, everybody, you know, says you're a gangster, you're a bad guy, a criminal. And his answer was, no, you know, I live in an unfair system and my people are oppressed. I'm a revolutionary right? So I felt like I had to get that sense of self-worth and justification, I guess you could call it self-justification, across to the readers. And then also, I was very conscious that I wanted the reader to identify in a sympathetic way with this man, despite, I mean, he's he's a really, really bad guy in many ways, right? And then I remember when I finished the book, my ex-girlfriend, I hadn't let her read, I mean, I had A shitty first draft, like I was saying, full of holes, so I couldn't let her read the thing for a long time. But when I finally said, okay, now you can read it because it kind of makes sense, she was in another room and then she came up to me and (laughs) told me, I hate that you made me like this guy, right? And at that point, I was like, okay, I've done part of what I wanted to do. Although I should say, because of the point of view sympathy that is kind of automatically generated... In any case, villains are often, I mean, not often, I think almost always, uh, we identify with them, right? And so if you think about Duryodhana, he's often, in popular depictions, he's evil, right? But if you actually read the text of the Mahabharata, he's a very complex man, right? And very sympathetic for the listener or the reader in many ways. If you think of Tony Soprano, right, another really, really bad guy, The creator, the showrunner of the show actually has talked about this. He was so surprised that the audience kept sympathizing with this guy, with this guy that as the seasons went on, he kept making him do worse and worse things, but it doesn't work, right? So I think there's a sense in which villains are sexier than the good guys, right? And then point of view works like that. So you don't have to push too far. But like I was saying, I was very conscious that I wanted to do this. Because uh, the sympathy on both sides is what makes the dance between him and Sartaj actually work.
0: In fact, I was about to talk about Breaking Bad. I mean, the yeah. central character yeah. is really bad. He does really terrible things. In fact, I was listening to an interview with uh, Margaret Atwood, who says that if there's a guy who wants to rob a bank just because he wants to do that, well, what's the audience going to think if his story is around that? But if he wants to rob a bank because his mother needs treatment for cancer then automatically you feel a bit more sympathetic towards him. I think I really like your insights into the ways in which, depending on the point of view, you can, if I may use the word, manipulate the audience into sympathizing mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So the juxtaposition between Singh and Gaitonde is quite fascinating. In many ways, they could be reduced to the simple storytelling binary of hero versus villain, cop versus mobster, good versus bad, etc., but there are certainly ways that they parallel one another. The contrast between Gaitonde, who literally rises from dirt and comes off as fearless and as someone willing to do anything to gain more power, and Singh, who often feels apprehensive, mediocre, and fears aiming too high, is particularly striking. They both read as these tragic figures who are ultimately just looking for something. Is it a conscious decision to weave in these core similarities? Not so much in their actions, because they obviously led very different lives, but similarities in personality and being. Or is it just a way to show that seemingly different people have more in common than we typically think? To what extent are characters' personalities shaped around how you want the audience to perceive them versus how you authentically imagine the characters to be? Because Gaetondra's personality could easily be written off as being evil, while Singh you feel a lot of sympathy towards.
1: Well, I think if I might return to the idea of characters rising from somewhere, I think it's both that and then at some point you become aware of what you as a writer are doing anyway. And then you can actually start to think about that in a kind of... More distance way, right? So when I started writing, like I was saying, I already knew Sartaj from the previous book, and I knew that he was, you know, he was, he's a policeman in the world of Indian policing in Bombay, right? So what he has to do to survive is very, very ambiguous. So policing anywhere in the world is an ambiguous activity, right? Because you have power, you often have weapons. You can harm people in order to actually exercise the law. Let me put it this way. Like, I met a pretty senior cop in Bombay that I'd met previous times. And I heard recently about a case of corruption in the police force. And as a sort of naive citizen, Indian citizen, I was complaining about this. And he looked at me and he said, Vikram, do you realize that if there is something as a completely clean cop, he's not going to be able to do his job? And what he meant was that, let's say you're trying to catch bad guy A, you often have to have a relationship with bad guy B, because that second guy will give you information and intelligence about the first guy and what he's giving it to you, right? Value. What value can you give to him in return? Well, you know, like favors. You let him exist right? for one thing. And it's a really slippery slope, right? Like, okay, so you're getting this thing from him. At what point does he start giving you money? And as we know, in Bombay, I know in particular, there's a lot of corruption, especially in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. I knew this very intimately, like huge, huge amounts of money were being exchanged. And so there is that, right? And the way that Sartaj has of dealing with this, because he had a father who was clean. And early in the book, somebody tells him that the father was the only clean cop that he had ever met that he had ever known. So the way that Sartaj tries to deal with this is by limiting himself to the amounts of money that he will take and from whom and for what. And, and he's aware that if you get too ambitious and prominent, you might be brought down. And this is very recently happened to a commissioner of the Bombay police force. So there's that on Sartaj's side and there is on Gaitande's side, again, complexity and humanness. Right. And that's actually the terrifying thing about people that we think of as evil. Right. They're not monsters. The fact is that they're as human as you or I, and somehow they have it within themselves to do the things that they do. So I guess for me, it's also a recognition. I mean, Hannah Arendt's famous phrase, the banality of evil, right. Like what she's talking about in part is that the Nazis who managed the concentration camps were petty executives, right, in a kind of organization devoted to genocide, right? And they kept track of numbers and they talked about efficiency and all of that. I don't want to justify the things that people do, but that recognition, like I said, is actually more scary, to me at least, than thinking of them as some otherworldly monsters.
0: And also in so many ways it humanizes them. Which is the reason why novels such as Sacred Games resonate with so many people, because at our core, we want to understand the full totality of human Mm. beings in whatever context that they are situated in. Right. So the thematic scope of the book is quite vast, particularly in regard to partition. I found, personally, the impact of Singh's mother to be a fascinating look into how major historical developments reverberate across generations. How do you communicate these political historical insights in a way that feels authentic to the character's experiences, rather than reflective of your own personal insights? Do they ever overlap? And how important was it to you to show these multi-generational threads of political trauma?
1: Well, I mean, crucial, actually. What I realized or was brought to my attention early on, that if you talk about organized crime in India, you're talking about many things. So for one thing, of course, you're talking about the connections between organized crime and politics. Organized crime cannot exist without political collusion. The political system, not just tolerating, actually engaging with that, again, for an exchange of value. And if you're talking about politics in today's India and India forever since independence, religion has been an essential part of this. As we've seen in this today and yesterday, All of this being brought to a boil very cynically for political advantage, right? And of course, the roots of partition, as we know, are in a sense religious. And again, that was the mobilization of religious sentiment in order to part people, a common culture, into two. So there's that. Again, a senior police officer early on said to me, if you really want to understand organized crime, you have to go to Delhi and talk to person X and Y. And what he was talking about were people in the intelligence services, right? Because what happens, and this happens everywhere in the world, but within the context of South Asian politics, people on both sides use organized crime, gangsters, smugglers as agents in a sense, right? So if you're going to try and move men and material over borders, who better to use than your neighborhood smuggler, right? Who already has those roots established and knows how to do it. And if you think about the Bombay Blast, right, which we finally discover were set in motion, planned, and executed by people on the Pakistani side, you remember who was involved in it. There were people from organized crime, Tiger, for instance, you know, and other people like that who did this. And so that's exactly what happens again and again. And then on the other side, Partition is still reverberating, not just through these large-scale politics, but through people's lives, right? My parents were born in the 30s, and my father, he was at BHU as a grad student, and he sometimes had to go underground because he was participating in anti bred independence activities. And my mother and my grandparents, all my relatives, lived through partition, saw it firsthand. And those were the stories that I grew up with, uh, friends who were from the Punjab, especially, They had stories of families being killed and a few survivors making it over the border. This was a normal part of my life. And then the Bombay film industry. I grew up around the Bombay film industry. My mother, Kamna Chandra, is a screenwriter and director. One of my sisters, Tanuja, is a screenwriter and director as well. And my youngest sister, Anupma, is a film critic. Film Companion is her company and her work. And the Bombay film industry, since partition, was heavily dominated by people who came over the border. So you can't escape it. There's no way that you can be alive in today's India or yesterday's India, and not understand that partition is still with us. It's a raw wound that people still feel. So for all of these reasons, as soon as I start thinking about Sartaj and his parents and gaitonde's activities and the intelligence services, and what's going on today and the nuclear threat, you know, which hangs over the entire book, I couldn't escape writing about that, both in larger terms and then in personal terms.
0: I really like the ways in which Partition becomes a backdrop to the main story. There are lots and lots of books on Partition where Partition itself is a character. But as we historically move away from the date of 1947, it is the way you show it in your novel. It becomes part of your DNA. Every narrative strand is intertwined with memories of partition just like they are in our family as well because my parents too came from what's now Pakistan so I grew up with the expression partition hearing almost on a daily basis and the ramifications of what happened right so the relationship between police and government and police and corruption is a major theme in the book the moral grayness of the police organizations is stunning and even Singh isn't above taking a bribe, as you talked about. But he really does try to stand for justice. The role of money is central to the story, given its influence in Gautonde's life and in getting pretty much anything with regard to the police. It's interesting to think about the contrast between the two, however. For Gatonde, money is corruptive. And for the police, they're kind of inherently corrupt in this world. How do you humanize these varying people and institutions who appear to be at the hands of money, greed and personal gain? Because if the reader just thinks about them as evil, then it's hard to create a significant attachment with them.
1: Yeah, to talk about just corruption and money for a bit. I mean, you cannot live in India without participating in corruption, right? At a very low level. I mean, the cop who stops you on the road for some minor traffic offense. And it's very clear. (laughs) You have to give him or her a few hundred rupees and then you don't have to actually get chalan and have to show up in court and deal with all that stuff. I think it's knit in with the texture of everyday life, right? In some senses, it's getting better, or or at least in some areas, you don't have to do all this kind of stuff. In the old days, to get a landline... (laughs) You have to wait years and people get paid off, right? And you would be put up the queue. Now, you know, because big companies want to make profits, you can get a cell phone in a day. But there is still corruption at both low levels and large levels. Recently, there have been scandals. You know, the great encounter specialists, the famous ones, made a lot of money from hits on people. Um, There's this one gang that once somebody on the other side was bumped off, you, know, you provide intelligence about where that guy is, and then you pay the encounter specialist, right? So again, mutual exchange, and the encounter specialist becomes famous and has movies made about him. Right? So, so, so one of the things early on in the book, the research and writing of the book, like I was saying, I've always, as uh, your sort of bourgeois citizen or any class of citizen have complained about corruption but I really wanted to understand how it worked, right? So we all know money moves around, but how exactly? How does it get outside the country? And so I started investigating that. Uh, One of the other things about corruption is that, as Sartaj demonstrates in the very first chapter, is that the money gets collected at the very bottom, right? The constables and the inspectors have to bring money back from the dance bars or in the old days, dance bars, and then it gets passed upward right, in various segments, and a lot of the bureaucracy and the machinery of police is run in part on that money. So that's something that I want to investigate, and the way Sartaj tries to keep clear, like I was saying, of this, or maintains some sense of self-respect and integrity in the shadow of his honest father is by not taking above certain amounts, right, and trying to think about who should I take money from. Right? Again, in the first chapter, there's a woman who brings her wayward young son to the station to get Sartaj into scaring him to go straight. And after it's done, she offers him money and he refuses to take it. And again, like everyone's got their justifications for this. And an incident that I'm remembering right now is that after the book was published, people started telling me about their encounters with corruption. And then one really interesting conversation I had was with this young man in Chennai. I did a reading down there, and we were talking afterwards, and he told me the story of his sister's ongoing encounter with this. So she worked in customs, right, which is traditionally what is known as a wet posting, right? You can drink deep from the well uh, because when things are coming through customs, right, you <laughs> it's you know you either catch the stuff or you don't catch the stuff. You let stuff pass through. And she didn't want to take money. But on the end of every month, a white envelope would show up on her desk with cash inside it. And it was just left there. And if she didn't pick it up, it would sit there the entire month. And so the idea was like, look, here's your cut. It's up to you what you want to do with it, but you're going to participate in this anyway. So she would give it to charity. And so, so but it's there, right? All around you. I mean, I'm not trying to get away from my own complicity in this. Throughout my life, I have bribed people and have felt like I had to do it at the same time that I was complaining about it. I just yeah. want to add one thing. The recent efforts from the current prime minister at you know, saying things like, I'm going to clean up, it's absolute nonsense. You know, Especially if you're taking part in a large-scale deal, much of the proceeds are paid in black. The only thing is now the money has to be given in smaller denomination bills. So instead of suitcases, you end up with truckloads of sacks right? If the amount is large enough. And I mean, if you want evidence of this, just like search in the newspapers for recent things where they've found, you know, pallets of cash, essentially, like the guy in Breaking Bad, right? Storing this becomes a problem. (laughs) Where do you put all this cash? So those cases occur every now and then as well. Often after the book came out, like some readers were emailing me or telling me, well, you presented the problem. Why don't you present a way to fix it? Like, luckily, that's above my pay grade. I have no idea. For something that is so deeply rooted and threads through the culture in such an intimate way.
0: I'm almost tempted to think that when you talk about human rights cinema or human rights fiction, revealing the problem and sensitizing people about the problem is enough. That's what you can do as a creative writer. And I think that exposure makes people think about the reality of this problem. And then maybe it sensitizes people and encourages people to do something about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I should say, though, in terms of reader reception, though, people don't like to see their heroes or heroines as corrupt, right? There's one review just after the book came out. It's just an Indian reviewer who was very upset about the fact that Sartaj was now taking bribes. In the story, the short story that appears, he's just getting divorced from his very rich wife. At that point, he can afford not to take bribes. And he's on the verge of like returning to the world of the ordinary policeman. <laughs> so, but she was very upset about this.
0: The book, similar to India, is kind of haunted by this heavy presence of religious tension and conflict. You can see how initially the underworld is quite secular. And people don't really care about who they are working with because ultimately they're only concerned about the money. Money is king and that's what people worship. That clearly changes and has its roots in various historical and political developments a country has seen. How important was it to convey the honesty of religious-based tension in painting an accurate picture of Indian politics and day-to-day interactions? Um, religion is so heavily politicized in India as it is in other countries. Did that aspect of the book feel necessary? Do you think it's inauthentic to the lived reality of ordinary people in any country facing tension to sideline that aspect of a society? And how do you balance providing commentary with creating a story? And finally, in what ways is Gaitonde's life enmeshed with a larger religious meta-narrative? What role do the meaning of power, dharma, and the sacred play in his life? Is he defeated by them or does he transcend them?
1: In terms of like, why would one want to do this? I mean, if you want to be even vaguely accurate, you have to put this into the book. How could I not? And, you know, this is not a process that started now. I mean, pre partition, the mobilization of religion started to take place. If you think about the right wing in India right now, I mean, you know, you look at the founders and the public intellectuals of the RSS, for instance. Starting to do this work in the 20s and 30s with special reference to Mussolini's organizations and so forth, and coming back to India and starting to implement this. And it's been very clear to me since I was a kid what was happening. And it's not like I had any special insights, especially by the time you get to the 80s and 90s and Babri Masjid happens and all of that happens. Um, You can see this kind of advancing tide in Sartaj's story in Love and Longy in Bombay. It's also there. So it wasn't like anything special that I had to do as soon as you start thinking about organized crime. This also plays in. And your point about the underworld being secular at some point was very like clearly early on told to me by my close friend, Hossein Zaidi, who's a eminent and amazing crime journalist who's been working the crime beat in Bombay forever. And he's one of the two people that the book is dedicated to because I couldn't have written it without him. He was kind of my friend and philosopher (laughs) about the underworld and other things. Uh, So, I mean, like you were saying, at a certain point, the god is money. And as long as you can keep making money, you don't care about who you're working with. It's a secular activity. And then once the bomb blasts happen, then this starts to change as it's revealed It was some of Daoud's people who brought in the explosives. He himself, once the the killing starts in Bombay, the killing of Muslims, he is in some ways shamed into acting also, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about the Babri Masjid first and the riots after that, and then the pressure on him to start reacting, which is the bomb blasts, you know, and so forth. All of that then in some ways splits the underworld. And the leading underworld dons are also politicians in a sense, right? They have a PR line to give. And so Chota Rajan sort of projects himself as the patriotic don. And according to some accounts, which I believe, he's actually very connected to India's intelligence agencies. And so all of this, again, was a part of the history as far as I could see it.
0: The book is quite cinematic and lends itself so beautifully to the web series, the depiction of the labyrinthine Mumbai, the bars, the slums, the police station, the homes and everything. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of research and physical journey that you undertook to conceive of the imagery that you encapsulate in the novel?
1: Well, I mean, my family moved to Bombay in 1977, and we've been there ever since. And my father was a corporate guy, so that immediate move was from Delhi. But we would lived in Calcutta and Baroda before then. And then I was born in Dalip, so we came back and then moved to Bombay. So it's very much home to me. And I came there, I did my middle school until 10th grade at a boarding school in Rajasthan. And as soon as I came to Bombay, I went to St. Xavier's for my, it's called Junior College. And I loved it. I loved the city. In many ways, it's a cruel and exhausting city, especially for those people who don't have economic resources who are at the bottom. One doesn't want to romanticize life in that place, but like Kartikar, right? <laughs> Sartaj's partner in the book is, you know, he says at some point in the book, like, once you've smelt the air of this place, you can't go anywhere else. And the smell of the place is dirty and, and like full of pollution, but in some ways it's intoxicating, right? And um, I go there now as often as I can. So I started, as it were, discovering Bombay in my teens and then discovering its various aspects, its geography. We lived when we first moved to Bombay on Napiency Road, very posh area in South Bombay. And then we moved to Lokanwala up in Andheri West, which was at that point just uh, starting to be developed and was already becoming the home of the film industry, right? Or at least of a lot of the ambitious people who wanted to get into the film industry. And then the various other aspects. And when I started writing the book, again, with Hussein's help and another friend of mine, Anuradha Tandon, who's the other person the book's dedicated to, who's kind of like me. She's very curious, and I can say to her, Anu, let's go tomorrow to, you know, whatever, and she'll say, okay, like, what time are you going to pick me up? And so I guess the conscious writerly reason for doing this is that I want to be in the landscapes that I'm writing about as far as I can, because there's things that you discover that you see and absorb even beneath your consciousness just by being in somebody's office or being in somebody's home, right? And the the example I always use for this is that I was in a police station talking to a young inspector. We were in his office and there were all these piles of files and I was asking questions. I had my notebook and pen out. I was writing down his answers. But what I noticed was that under his desk, I could see his feet and he was wearing a kind of very expensive branded space age sneakers. And I ended up using those sneakers. years later. And that kind of thing that sticks in your memory somehow is often to me very, very useful. So if you're kind of trying to do kind of thick description of a place and of a culture, all of this stuff, objects, clothing, um, really helps you.
0: I think uh, the internet helps a little bit these days.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very useful. You know, if you want to know some obscure fact about something or the other Like, how is a wisdom tooth removed? You can now instantly look it up, right? When I started writing, like seriously working on my first novel, this was the 80s, and you had to do interlibrary loan, right? Although I was already a computer geek, and I think I must have been one of the first first people who bought a modem and started connecting in some ways to the wider world out there. Yeah, and I mean, now we are definitely in the middle of an AI revolution. And there's a couple of tools that I'm already using that are cutting short or making my research easier.
0: So talking about the cinematic appeal once again of the book, the book is quite cinematic from how much Bombay or Mumbai plays a role to the language to how well characters are fleshed out. And it almost feels like a Scorsese movie, at times with how full and palpable the world feels. Were there any cinematic influences in writing the book? And also, Talk about the process of translation from one medium to the other. Were you satisfied with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, to start at the end, I loved the series. I was asked early if I wanted to be in the writer's room. And at that point, I mean, I was teaching here. I have kids, so I couldn't spend a whole lot of time in Bombay. And this was pre-pandemic and (laughs) pre-Zoom. So I had to turn that down. But in many ways, I'm glad that I didn't do that because... I would have been too stuck to the way that I had imagined the book and written it. And so what they did in terms of adaptation was spectacular. If you think about how they took a 900-page novel and they put it into 16 episodes and reconstructed it, it's just amazing. The book was optioned a couple of times soon after it was published. And I had a meeting with one of the leading guys of a very good production company in L.A. who wanted to option the book for a movie. And I told him, I don't see how you're going to do it, even if you do a three-hour movie. And they optioned it, and they had a British writer work on it for a couple of years, and finally they just gave up. It just wasn't working. And HBO had just started doing long-form prestige television But I think we came along with this Netflix thing at exactly the right time. And I think the long-form two-season format allowed them to do this, but still blending together two narrative lines and then finding characters and deciding who should get a front stage role and who should be left out, I couldn't have done that by myself, or even if I was in the writer's room. So to go back about cinema, I mean, I'm from a cinema-crazy family. Like I said, my mother's a screenwriter. She's been interested in film even before we moved to Bombay. And she wrote her first film, Prem Rogue, for Raj Kapoor in the early 80s. And then Brijesh Chopra and so on. When I was growing up, cinema was present in our house. We used to get like fancied up on Saturdays or Sundays and go watch a movie in a theater. I still remember I was very young in Delhi and I fell down and scraped my knee in the morning one school day. I must have been, what, five or six. And I made such a fuss about it that I wasn't sent to school. And my mother and her friend had already booked matinee tickets for Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> and so I whined and then I was taken along because there's nobody to like, take care of me. I didn't understand much English at all at that point, but I still remember being blown away by the cinema of the, I mean, just the incredible direction and landscape of that movie. So when I got older, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was terrified by the thought of making a living as a writer. It was very clear. My mother was a writer and I knew how much she made. Now <laughs> You couldn't make a living then and now, unless you're you know, Stephen King or somebody from writing. So I actually went to film school at Columbia after I got my BA for a year and then figured out that I wasn't cut for the film industry. So when I imagine what happens is that when I'm writing, what I see very clearly in my head is, I guess you could think of it as a cinematic scene, right? There's a mood, there's a light, right? I see people talking to each other. I hear them. And then my job as a writer is to try and translate that onto the page and make people hear and see the same things. And not the same things, but see them similarly and feel in the same domain area as I'm trying to express that feeling. And then simultaneously giving them rasa, kind of an aestheticized pleasure. So I think that shows up very clearly in the writing itself.
0: When you're doing creative writing, you build each chapter like a scene, like a movie scene. Every individual chapter then becomes an independent cinematic scene with the beginning, with the problem and the resolution and everything. Do you keep that sense of unity in mind when you're writing? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, architecture in fiction, or fiction of any sort, whether it's on the page or in cinema, is something that you have to deal with. And you can think of storytelling architecture as a use of patterns. So there's a certain rhythm, certain kinds of storytelling structures that have been worked out and tested over the centuries for thousands of years, right? So if you think of a bard sitting next to the fire and telling a story to a company of people, he or she had to know how to get fed. And the way you get fed is if you capture the audience's attention and you keep it, And you make them feel happy by the end of the thing. I mean, even if you break their hearts, they want to give you food. (laughs) So people have thought about this for a long, long time, right? Both at the level of, I guess, what you would call in some ways disparagingly the folk level and at the very high aesthetic philosophy level. In in the Indian case, it's particularly the Rasa guys, right? Anand, Vardhana, and that crowd. And this is what we talk about in writing workshops. How is a story constructed? What is your beginning, middle, and end? Are you using a kind of three-act structure with the conflict? What's your conflict? How do your characters relate to this? Are there ways in which you can disrupt this three-act structure or not do it altogether? What do you lose or gain by doing that? And again, this is discovered for me and for many others through revision. So you write your shitty first draft, just trying to get words on the page and discover your characters and some sense of what this damn story is about. And then maybe on your 10th draft, you can start to see, okay, this is how I need to shape it. This is what the characters need to do. This is what they desire. This is what is preventing them from getting it.
0: I was struck that amidst the themes of violence, corruption, fear, loneliness, and human fallibility, the book makes a case about love being central to life especially one's quality of life. Did you feel like this was a necessary message to make sense of the chaotic world, the world the characters inhabit? And would it feel empty or too cynical without this core value of love? Did you always envision the book having that core theme?
1: Well, I mean, again, hope I'm not resorting too much to this argument, but I mean, you can kind of see it in each of our lives, right? Like community, love, belonging, It's built into us, it's knit into us from our bones, DNA upwards. And so, somebody like Gaitonde is a violent bad man, I guess, but even somebody like him longs for something. Not just sex and, I mean, your styler girlfriend so you can show her off, but some kind of connection with her. I guess I'm giving away a spoiler. At the end, like what breaks his heart most of all is the disruption between his love that has been with him for many years. Finally, that's the thing. In all his loneliness, he's isolated and hunted. And Sartaj, you know, like I said, in the short story, he's going through a divorce and he's heartbroken. And I wasn't planning this, but in the course of the book, in his investigation, he meets a woman that he falls in love with. And I didn't think of it while I was writing as like a necessary redemptive thing to save him or to make the audience feel not so dark. It was just something that happened to him and made sense in terms of who he was, where he was in his life. And I hope also he discovered something about the way how you love people in life. And there's also other kinds of love, parental love love between friends, Sartaj and Kartikar, all of that is what gives us the ability, despite all the exhaustion and the despair, to get from one day to the other, right?
0: Absolutely. And so I was intrigued by the representation of the gender politics in the novel, as well as the TV series. Guy his mother, his lovers, his wife, Kuku, Zoya, Subhadra, his partners, Jojo, and other smaller characters. And then there is Anjali Mathur. All the female characters are shown as no-nonsense and strong women. Mm. But most of them end up dying. Mm. Talk about that.
1: I guess I grew up surrounded by very strong women. Not just my mother, but my aunts and my grandmothers. And this within a culture that is deeply, in many ways, misogynistic and sexist and patriarchal. They don't just survive it, but they fight back and they thrive. I mean, again, right from my first book, you don't realize these things until other people point them out, even after publication. So in that first novel, there's like Begum Samru, who's based on a real person, like this dancing girl, notch girl, who became the ruler of a small principality, Sardana, in North India during the troubles of the 19th century through colonization. So I think inevitably in Sacred Games, that also happened. and. Again, I suppose, because of the way that I think or have experienced women in my life in India and elsewhere. And in terms of people dying, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound like a whataboutery. But a lot of the men in the book die as well on every side of the equation. In the book, Zoya is the last woman standing. And she actually last character standing, apart from Sartaj. And she escapes more or less unscathed and still triumphant. There is Kantabai, who for a while at least dominates Gaitonde's world and introduces him. So yeah, I've seen people like this in public and in private all my life.
0: Talk a little bit about the titles of some of the episodes in Sacred Games. I'm talking about the web series.
1: Again, that was when the people in the writer's room took over and started reconstructing the series. They saw what is, I think, already present in the book, not just religion, but The culture that is talked about both in a secular and religious sense throughout, they found a way to use that in the titles, as in other places, right? So when you have Guruji in there appealing to these narratives and using them, that's very prominent in the book as well. And then what he does in terms of his seduction of Gaitonde is also give him a sense of, you know, who are you? Well, you're Arjun, you're a fighter on the Kurukshetra, a modern battle. So I think that's what they saw and they decided to deploy those. And the stunning visuals that go along with those titles in the title sequence, I think also came out of their sense of what the book was about. And in the book, I should say that in terms of architecture, I kept looking for a structure for the book. And then at some point, I discovered that the book wanted to end where it started in a sense, right? It moves in a circular fashion. And then, of course, it was the idea of the chakra, the the visual understandings of that that exist in Hinduism, in Buddhism, right, and so forth. And Sartaj actually goes and watches a group of Buddhist monks who are making a sand mandala on the ground in a bank <laughs> window at some point, right? And he's fascinated by it, and he watches it. And so I realized that the book is a mandala. And we talked about this before they started writing All of this, so maybe that's how they came to those titles. Oh, and I should say, in Love and Longing in Bombay, each of the stories has a title that again reaches back. Right. So one of the stories is called Dharma. Sartaj's story is called Kama because it's about him and his wife, (laughs) also in very central ways.
0: How long did you take to write the book?
1: (laughs) I, you know, I, I would say like at least ten years. I mean, and I say at least 10 years because what happens when you write a book is that you finish it, and then it takes a year or more to actually get to print, right? And then the next book starts to seep in your head. So Love and Longing came out in 97, and I think I sent in the final my edit of it. Uh, We had the page proofs done maybe by end of 96, right? And the book came out in 2006, uh, Sacred Games did right? By which time I'd already started researching this, but then Sartaj comes alive in Love and Long in Bombay. So I started the research for that probably in like 94 or 93 even, and started going to police stations back then. I mean, I love police procedurals. And so I wanted to write one. And like I said, it also has right-wing extremist activity in that as well. So I started thinking about crime and religion, I suppose, back then. So I write very slowly. Over the course of a lifetime of writing, I've published four books. It's very frustrating to me sometimes. I see friends of mine who seem to be able to publish amazing novels every two or three years, and I'm so jealous.
0: Why do characters reappear in your book?
1: Well, I mean, Sartaj is the only one who's done it so far. Actually, Sartaj and Parulkar and kartikar right? Those are the three who appear in Kama in Love and Longing, and I really don't know why. Generally, when I finish a book, I'm done with its world, and then the characters, I never write about them again. But for some reason, Sartaj stayed in my head, and it felt like we had unfinished business. <laughs> but I did think after Sacred Games was published that I was done with him. We were friends, but we had agreed to part ways, in a sense, and then the series happened, and then he showed up, right? I will say that I like the series idea, One of my favorite writers is Anthony Trollope, and he has the Parliament novels, in which for five big books, the same people end up showing up. And by the end of it, you become so enmeshed and you love them so much that when something bad happens with them, it's actually heartbreaking. I won't say which book, because if any of your listeners haven't read the Parliament novels, you absolutely should. But in the last one, on the very first page, one of these characters who has been prominent from the first one dies. I know a writer who was in a hotel room on book tour and he threw the book across the room because his heart was broken. But I never have wanted to do this. One writer who also writes detective novels, when I told her after Sacred Games was published that I didn't think I was going to write Sartaj anymore, she looked at me as if I was mad, right? Because she liked the character and the book was at that point commercially successful and so forth. And she didn't see how you wouldn't go forward (laughs) with that. But like I said, I think I'm done with him at this point.
0: About Sirtaj, I wanted to say that I think Saif Ali Khan did a fantastic job in depicting the contradictions, the dilemmas, the conundrums, everything, you know, the very profound. Emotions that he's experiencing. And to me, he came across as this moral core that is walking through the labyrinthine Mumbai or Bombay, even though he's corrupt and everything. But he has this angst on his face all the time. He just brought it out brilliantly. So, my last question now I really enjoyed the attention to detail in capturing the essence of minor characters. What is the value of carefully crafting a character, regardless of the time the audience gets to spend with them? did that ever get tedious or was it easy?
1: I don't know about easy, but it's something that I like doing. And I think it adds to a book. I certainly love reading books in which somebody shows up for a page, right? And then maybe shows up 200 pages later, but you remember them. When they show up again, you feel a sense of recognition, right? And again, if you read the Victorian writers, right? Trollope Thackeray, Dickens, they're very good at doing this. And I think particularly because they're writing in serialized form for magazines and you're reading them like at a month apart chapters for years on end there's a certain economy of characters in a book you can't just keep introducing new ones so you have to come back to the post office and meet the postmaster so you want the reader to recognize and remember them and you to do that you have to give them some texture right something individualized even if they like i said should only show up for a few minutes and again this happens in cinema a lot right like there's character actors who will show up for one scene or two scenes in the length of a, an hour and 45 minute film and you experience them as humans. And that's wonderful. And then there's somebody like Fellini. <laughs> he has his people go out and look for interesting faces because he wants even his extras, the background people in the scene, to be arresting, to catch your eye.
0: I was thinking about um, the one movie that didn't do that. It was one of those Raj movies. I think it was Heat and Dust. Where all the Indians completely ended up dehumanizing all the people. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course that's deliberate, it's kind of a projection of the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, the famous Indian crowd, yes. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just the mass of brown. Yeah, 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 that's right.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've loved reading your novels. I've loved watching Sacred Games and thank you so much for contributing so wonderfully to the field of literature and the arts.
1: Thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. I had a great time.
0: The production assistance for this episode was provided by the Language Learning Center, University of Washington, Seattle, and the Student Research Assistant, Anaga Dirisala.